welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. and welcome to today's episode of the Grow My Salon Business Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and it's great to have you here with us again today. Before we get started with our guest on the podcast today, I wanted to let you know about an upcoming free masterclass that I'm offering titled The Five Steps to Unlock Your Salon's Potential. And then for those of you that are really serious about growing your business, the masterclass will immediately be followed up by an introduction into the next launch of the online Super Stylist course. I promise that you are not going to want to miss this. So to see the remaining dates and times to register for the free masterclass, go to growmysalonbusiness.com forward slash register. And even if you can't attend the live seminar, then register anyway, and you'll be sent a replay the following day. So remember, the website is growmysalonbusiness.com forward slash register. And I'll also put that link in the show notes of today's podcast. So with that done, on with today's show. The world over, the salon industry is a collection of small businesses, and in many cases, the owners of those businesses are often overwhelmed with legal issues and tax issues, health and safety updates, and a raft of employment law and employment problems sometimes, as well as all the other fun stuff that comes with being a small business owner. Luckily, in many countries, we are also supported by industry associations that are there to offer information, support, and to help owners navigate their way through the maze, as well as offering solutions and a sense of community as well. Today's podcast is one in a series of three episodes where we're going to talk to the key representatives of associations in the United Kingdom, the United States, and Australia to get an overview of the hairdressing industry in each of their respective countries, the challenges they face, and the solutions that they have. My guest on today's podcast is Sandy Chong, and Sandy is the Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Hairdressing Council. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Sandy Chong. Hi, Anthony. So happy to be here. Thank you for having it's me. Fantastic. I'm so happy to have you here. It's, uh, it's great to have this opportunity to talk to you because I know you have you know, really invaluable um, insights about what's happening in the hairdressing industry, uh, particularly in Australia. So um, I always like to start off by getting my guests to introduce themselves. Um, so let's just start with, a, with a, a short overview of your background. Who is Sandy Chong? Uh, give us your sort of two-minute backstory, and then we can uh, dig into that afterwards. Okay, so what I do at the moment is I'm CEO of what's called the Australian Hairdressing Council. But I think what's important to note is that I am a hairdresser and I have been for over 40 years. I also own my own salon and I have for 35 years. It's called Suki. And uh, we used to have up to 45 staff at one point. But because of the work that I do for the industry at the moment, I did let go of one salon and I now work full time for the Australian Hairdressing Council and the hairdressing industry in Australia. 
Okay, fantastic. That was great. I've got a little, a little, what should we call it? An icebreaker for want of a better, a better term here. Um, and uh, let me throw this at you and see how you answer it. Um, what do you beat yourself up about when you're in the car by yourself where no one else can see or hear you? What do I beat myself up about? Oh, my God. That's a really hard one. Probably, do you know, I can't sing. I can't sing. I'm a terrible singer. I'm tone deaf. And so if I was in the car by myself and I tried to sing, it's really embarrassing. I, I, I embarrass myself to me. That's the only thing I can think of. I wish I could sing. I'm shocking. I can't sing happy birthday. So um, I guess if I was that in is the car, I was, <laughs> oh, I'm shocking. I'm shocking. I usually call people up on their birthday and sing them happy birthday just to give them a really hard time uh, yeah. because it's so bad. So that's the only thing I can think of in the car, beating myself up. I actually like being in the car and I find it thinking time. And yeah, it is. So, yeah, I actually enjoy it. But, yeah, if I try and sing, I go, Sandy, that was really bad. Like, and if anyone heard that, that would be very embarrassing. Yeah. Right. Okay. So let's let's talk about uh, your role in the industry. Uh, you, you've dropped a an acronym in there, AHC. Uh, what exactly is the AHC? Um, Right. Well, it's an industry organisation. So we have members that holistically represent, say, all the stakeholders in the industry. So salon owners, we have what's called registered training organisations. So they're the institutions where you learn your qualifications. So the colleges, we have teachers and educators and associate members, all of the product companies are all members of the Australian Hairdressing Council. Um, it's really important to have a strong organisation, a strong voice, when we, uh, I guess, we lobby to the government. We're an advocacy, obviously, organisation that represent our industry to the government so that they're not making decisions that may not be best for our industry. And I think that you need to have someone or an organisation in charge that really understands everything about the industry and that can represent every sector as well. So that's part of our role. So speaking directly to the government bodies, the bureaucrats, the ministers, the senators, um, and being part of a lot of consultation groups about anything and everything to do with small business, employing people, training people, or anything to do with our industry, in fact, is pretty much what I do. Okay. So... Well, you know, I, I know in some countries they will have lots of different, you know, representative bodies like that. In Australia, is there just CAHC or is there other organisations that are sort of professional bodies representing the industry? We're the, we are the biggest association right. in Australia. We have the most representation. And I think because of our very diverse membership um, platform as well, it means that mm. we cover a lot of stakeholders and I think because our interests and our our projects actually help a lot of different sectors of the industry um, we were we are definitely the biggest and we are the one that is definitely the go-to when it comes to media um, you know if the media want to interview on anything they'll come to us whether it's about hairdressing but more about small business yeah. um, we do a lot of media interviews etc so we're very right. much the go-to association, for sure. Okay. So so just to put it all in context, what, what sort of percentage of the industry, what sort of percentage of salons would belong to um, AHC? 
Well, certainly not enough. So we would have over a thousand salons that are members of the AHC, and there's a, around fifteen thousand salons in Australia. We would love to have the other fourteen thousand, of course, because then、mm. that would make us a very strong body. I don't think there is any association that captures every single small business within their own industry. Yeah. Um, but the AHC is a fairly new association, really,、um, in the picture of associations. So, considering we've only been around for ten years, we've grown、um, at a huge rate, and our projects have always、um, covered so many areas. So,、mm. you know, we're we're growing in lots of different areas. I guess, yeah, I think I think、say. that's one of the problems that associations have. Um, in Australia, here in the UK, and in the US, is that they don't always have great, you know,、uh, great membership bases, and and that's a shame because especially with the last, you know, year that everyone's gone through, having a having one voice. Speaking for the industry, regardless of which country you're in,、um, is has been enormously helpful、uh, for other sectors. But the hairdressing industry、uh, tends to not be that represented that well in terms of that.、Um, yeah, you know. Well, I think also too a salon. On a day-to-day basis, we'll go. Well, what's in it for me? And、yeah. they'll want to join an association because they expect you to do. Or the lobbying and the advocacy work, but they don't really、mm. want to know about it, and they don't really understand it. So they may not even really understand how much work you do in that area, because on a day-to-day basis, it doesn't affect them. But we've been working a lot, a lot on the skills migration list, for instance, and、mm-hmm. that's a lot of work from the Australian Hairdressing Council. But does that affect a salon today? No, but will it affect them in the future? Definitely, yes. And the amount of work in the background is huge for us.、Mm. Um, you know, a lot of trips, a lot of visits to Parliament House, speaking to ministers over and over and over again. And so sometimes a member may not say, "Well, what's in it for me today?" and and they they wonder about the value. Yeah. Yeah, and what that is—the skills migration、um, issue. Yes, what you're talking、yeah. about is this this lack of,、uh, you know, there's a shortage of hairdressers if you are salon owners in Australia. So certain、oh, jobs,、yeah. if they're If they're put on the list, then it makes it easier for people to migrate to the country. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we're crying out for talent,、um, like everybody else. You know, we're 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 on our knees at the moment, trying to find qualified and skilled staff. And so, what our government wants to do here is actually take hairdressing off the list, which means that it would be really difficult to come to, you know, especially Sydney, Melbourne, and Brisbane. Our, our main cities are the ones that are affected. To be able to come to this. Country and actually work as you know a stylist or a barber, and so I've been fighting the government to keep us on the list so that we can get you know migrant workers in, qualified hairdressers and barbers who can transfer their skills and their talent, and you know we want these people here. So、um, that's been that's been a lot of lobbying on my behalf and a lot of. Meetings with the government, a lot of roundtables.、Um, you know, you have to show case studies, and、um, you know, we've had petitions, a lot of media, whatever. So、um, that's a lot of work, and we still have not got the result that we want. Right now, I'm going to I'm going to argue that from another perspective, and I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just putting another viewpoint out there. I know that if I talk to Salon owners,、uh, not just in Australia, but in in you know、uh, the UK, the US as well,、uh, that they will often say there's a shortage of hairdressers, and 
But if I asked a, a, a member of the public and said to them, is there a shortage of hairdressers in your country or your city? They'd say, no, there's hairdressers on every street corner. They're everywhere. So is the real problem that there's a shortage of hairdressers or is the real problem that there are too many salons competing for a small pool of potential employees? I think, you know, you are right. There are lots of hairdressers here. Um, and, you know, in Australia, we do have huge concerns with what we call the kitchen operators. And mm. when I say the kitchen operators, I'm not talking about the home operators. And there's thousands of hairdressers that are working from home that are not in shop fronts. And, you know, sometimes that's, I think, the question to ask is, you know, how can we get those home hairdressers back into our salons? Because that's where there yeah. is actually a lot of qualified hairdressers. But mm. there is an issue too, um, which which is one of our concerns, I feel, and it is there are a lot of qualified hairdressers, but there's not a lot of skilled hairdressers, and there's quite a difference there. So mm -hmm. when we look at migrants, bringing migrants, we're actually looking for particular skills. There are skills in Australia that we don't have that okay. hairdressers actually in the UK are really good at, or if you're from Europe. Um, we don't have those skill sets here. And so they're the kind of skill sets that we would love to have and we really want in our country. So, so give but, me an example. What do you mean? What are some of the skills that you, you think they have in Europe that okay. you don't have in the Australian industry? So Afro hair. Okay, so oh, if, right, you, okay. If, you're, if you're in the UK, then yeah. you're, you, know, you would be used to, you've been taught how to cut Afro hair. But when we look at Afro hair in Australia, and Australia's become so multicultural now, you know, mm. it's, it's a different population to what it was 10 years ago and 20 years ago. And in our training package, which is what we you know, get taught when we're doing hairdressing, um, they teach how to do Afro hair 15 times, but they actually, it's only mentioned no one actually does it because no one knows how to teach it. No mm. one has the skill to teach it there. So unless you're actually from, you know, literally from Africa or from the UK and you have Afro hair, mm. then, um, you know, no one's teaching it here. The other skill that's amazing is your barbers. So the cutthroat doing faded beard trims, you know, mm. that's a skill that comes from overseas and we don't have that skill. So we really need those amazing barbers that you've got overseas to come over there, come over here and, and teach us those skills and teach our teachers those skills. So there's definitely a gap in what's missing. Hairdressing has been on the short, has been on the, um, the, uh, the skill shortage list for 20 years in Australia. So mm -hmm. we have a gap of skilled people. And so even if we just happen to get a whole lot of apprentices this year, it would be, you know, four or five years really before we have those talented people um, that that are available for our salons. So there is that skills gap that is there. But I hear what you're saying. There are mm. a lot of home hairdressers. Yes, there are. But there's a lot of missing skills for us as well. Okay. So l let me just put some, some of this into context. You, you said, I think, there are 15,000 salons in the country. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, give yeah. or take, yeah, because yeah. some will be doing beauty. So let's just, yeah, yeah round it out at 15,000. Yeah. Okay, and so that's 15,000 salons. Uh, how many hairdressers would there be in the country? What would be an accurate so thing on that? Yeah, if we look at the if we look at the records from the Australian Taxation Office, okay, mm -hmm. so we call that the ATO, there's around 34,500 hairdressers. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what they show. But then, of course, there's a lot more 
who are operating from home. And there's others who are what we call operating under the radar. Um, mm. When we look at the numbers of the amount of home hairdressers that are out there, there's, there's literally thousands. Right. Uh, so do you think double the amount that, like, when you, your first answer from the Australian tax office is 34,000, do you think there might be another 30,000 or more that are still hairdressing but from home? And, yeah, and not there registered. Would easily be, yeah. There would easily be, you know, another another twenty thousand operating within home, and within that you would have your rent chairs, you would have your freelancers, of course, and um, and your contractors. The the rent chair, of course, is growing at a massive mm. rate, and the landscape here is changing, of course, um, just like every other trade. The landscape is changing in the way we do business, and hairdressing is no different. Yeah. So, I mean, I know like any country, you've got some salons that are, that are quite big in terms of staffing levels, uh, but what would the average salon size be in terms of staffing levels across the country? Yeah. I mean, you've got your very higher end where there's, you know, that there's 20 staff and, and 25 staff, but that, you know, mm. there's, there's not so many of us now. I think that you'll find that the majority of salons are sitting around the, you know, employing five people. Um, and that seems to be the average um, size salon, whereas my salon, I've always had over 20 and even I'm down to 15 staff at the moment. And I think that, you know, the traditional salon, it's the, there's definitely a change in the model of the traditional salon and what we're all looking at at the moment. And I think for all of us here at the moment, we're looking at our businesses and, and going, well, how are we going to adapt as well in these changing times? And I think it's important for everybody to start well, they should be anyway, looking in the mirror and looking at their own business and critiquing it and going, you know, um, you know, the one thing I always say about hairdressing that's permanent is change. But I do find that salon owners often resist change and yet they would never do the same haircut, same colour on, you know, a client for years and years and years and years. But when it comes to changing their business model, we're very mm. resistant to changing our business model. And I really yeah. do think that you know, that traditional salon model, we, we really need to look in the mirror and think about, well, how do we get people back into our salon? How do we get our stylists to stay? And what do we need to do? What do we need to do to change? Yeah. Okay. So uh, in terms of training and on how people get into, you know, hairdressing in the Australian market, is it more of an apprenticeship-based model um, or more of the, you know, school-based model like it is in the United States? Yeah, the school-based model is available here, but it's not as popular. So the, I guess the most common way to get into the industry is through an apprenticeship. The unfortunate thing, though, in Australia is that in the first year of an apprenticeship, we actually lose 68% of our apprentices. Right, and so these the, are kids that start out in it, but you lose 68% yeah, in one year, right? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, in the first year, which is really sad. And, you know, the AHC has been surveying a lot of employees of late and, and the, there are some things that come up. And the, the first thing that comes up is that they're not being trained. So they're being employed and I guess, you know, when I was the first year, well, I expected to clean and I would, you know, learn my trade. But nowadays they want to learn from day one. They mm -hmm. don't want to be cleaning. They want to be learning from day one. So the things that come up is, one, um, they're not being trained. Two, they feel that they don't have a great salon culture. But what comes up more than anything is they feel that they can't speak to their business owner, to their salon owner. The mm -hmm. lack of communication, maybe being told to do something rather than asked or, you know, in a conversation, it's not, it's sort of one-sided being spoken at rather than spoken with. And mm. there's some of the things that have 
we've been looking at at the moment, um, this whole gap between uh, salon owner and an employee. And the Australian Hairdressing Council is actually, we're designing programs at the moment to try and help that gap, help the, you know, employees be better employees, employers be better employers as well, and just, you know, try and um, create a platform where employees can go to to get help so that they Mm. can be better hairdressers, better people, better employees, more successful. So we're we're developing programs at the moment around that, actually. Is that something that is specific to the hairdressing industry or is that, you know, more culturally of challenges that that exist today with a, a new generation coming through? I think that, look, I think it's in every industry and I think that, Every industry has its challenges. And, you know, if we look at the last 12 months um, and the one thing that will come up everywhere is mental health. And, you know, so, you know, even for us, we'll look at mental health and we'll look at, you know, what the effect that 2020 had on the way people think and how they think differently. And when I think about business and everything that I would talk about the last few years, I would talk to a lot of business owners about being flexible with staff. Whereas now all I'm talking about is, you know, staff want no commitment. They want freedom. They want to be paid. And I think that with 2020, the fact that, you know, for many of us, our freedom was taken away. Our choices were taken away. And the way we work was different last year. And Mm. I think it just sort of, it's really sort of upset everybody, hasn't it? It's made everyone think differently about how they want to do things. You know, I I hear what you're saying. I think that with all industries, you know, it's changing times. And I think that everyone is identifying just different needs that they have now that they want. They, You know, I find that work-life balance is the key thing right now. I think because that didn't happen in 2020, um, that work-life balance uh, choice was taken away. And so I feel that, you know, that there seems to be a real focus on that. It's like, how do I get my freedom? How do I get... How do I not commit to anything? How do I get paid? Um, do I have my work-life balance? And um, and I still want to do work, but mm. um, you know it's very hard to get people to work the same as I think pre-COVID actually. Okay, and in terms of the business model evolving and changing, I know Australia's had a a very strong employee-employer based business model. Um, how how is that evolving and changing? Um, well, I think that, you know, just like with the other countries, but Australia is a little bit more behind, um, you know, we are moving more towards the suites and the rentatrears and the contractors. And um, during COVID, when we did survey the industry, we knew that a lot were operating from home and have moved from home. A lot have moved away from the industry as well. We also lost a lot of our visa workers from the country, which was really sad. But um, I think that there's been, you know, very definite, I think, changes in the industry, especially with the traditional salon, um, in really looking on how we do things. So, so ballpark, any idea of what percentage are now uh, rental as opposed to a more employee-employer-based model? Um, with I look at percentage because I always go on numbers. Um, so I'm not quite sure what percentage I could give you, but I know that from COVID, we had around 13.2% leave the industry to go rent a chair. So that's in the mm-hmm. last 12 months. That's from right. the stats from the surveys that we've been doing. 18% actually decided to leave the industry. Completely. Um, and so that was, yeah, so mm-hmm. that's what came through with our surveys. 
8% moved away and that could have been any reason with COVID that they moved away to be with their families or whatever. And the, the one part of the industry, of course, that's growing is the barber industry and we're screaming for barbers. So I think that's that's one area that, that has always maintained being very strong. And there were, I think, um, there were 14% that decided to be home operators. And so they were some of the stats that came out of a survey that we did straight after after COVID, which were, right. yeah, it was okay. interesting. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And and the salon suite model, um, how much traction is there with that in Australia? I know they exist, but um, is it mm. is it is it embraced? Is it, uh, you know, when you were talking before about what different generations want with, with less commitment and stuff now, are they gravitating more towards that sort of model as a result of that? There's there's a some there's some um, suites that are opening in Australia and they're they're excellent I have to say you know I've gone through them and I've had a look at them and they're really polished they're beautiful um, they have a beautiful environment the security is fantastic the culture is great and from our perspective you know I do get so many of the industry just complaining about the suites and whinging and whining and groaning and moaning and um, you know when I have a look at the suites and uh, and they're really professional, the ones that I've seen. They look fantastic. And then you could walk out of there and go down the street and see a hair salon with flies in the window and dust and, you know, mm. and, you know they're really casual and it's, you know, just not a good look. And you sort of go, well, what would you rather have represent the industry? A suite mm. that looks really polished where someone is renting their 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 room, their suite, um, the ones I've looked at have got commercial kitchens and, um, you know, wonderful areas for where everyone can get together. And they're just, um, you know, they create these professional communities of different talent, whether it's hairdressers or whether it's beauty or massage or, you know, injections, whatever, within these suites. And it's sort of like a one-stop, you know, destination for a consumer as well. Like, they love it. So it's just a different business model and I think it's a very successful business model anyone that's lost anyone to a suite is obviously not happy about that but at the end of the day um, you know this I think the suites are certainly providing a great service for the industry Um, they do the ones that I've spoken to who set up the suites their intention was to um, I guess draw people from working from home and give them a space a professional space and um you know, I think that they will do really well. They, we have quite a few here at the moment. I think there's um, well over 100. Um, I think that they're probably closer to maybe 350 or 400 right. in suites. Indi- individual and, suites, right. Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah, individual yeah. suites, and, and they're growing, and mm. they, they will grow. I think it's a good business model. Mm. Okay. Um, do, do you, I mean, Australia, like America, has multiple states. I mean, America has a lot more states. Uh, one of the things I often find when I'm in the US is that there's different laws in different states. Are, are you, do you find those challenges in Australia with training and apprenticeships and, you know, laws about opening salons and licensing, et cetera? Are they, is it pretty much a federal thing or is it different state by state? No, it's different state by state. So only in New South Wales and South Australia, so two states, do you need a qualification to actually do hair. All of the other states, you don't need one. And that's really frustrating for lots of reasons, whether it's consumer safety or whether it's contributing to what we call the black economy, as in, you know, 
cash economy, mm-hmm. um, as in undeclared money, et cetera, et cetera. And so one of our roles, or one of our jobs that we're doing at the moment actually is uh, we will be lobbying the states. We've started with one of them because we do feel that if a qualification is mandatory, at least that gives our qualifications some credibility. Mm. Um, it gives it some substance and some respect as well. And I think that it would also deter some of the kitchen operators. So the kitchen operators are the ones that, you know, have no qualifications that are using chemicals in their kitchen, over the kitchen sink. And, you know, you know, quite frankly, it's not, you know, it's dangerous and it's not great for the reputation of our industry at all. Mm. And so, um, you know, for first for I think for consumer safety, but also to just for credibility for our for our reputation for our qualification um, we will be lobbying all the states that do not require qualification you don't need a qualification to open up a business you don't need a license and there's very little if any regulation at all in any of the states wow i didn't realize that i i thought you had to be you know um a qualified hairdresser to to uh to do hair but you're saying you don't except in two states no, wow well, I, I didn't New South Wales, yeah Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, one of the things I do know about Australia from having lived there and had salons there for a while is the employee benefits and stuff in Australia are, are good if you're an employee. They're very good. Um, talk to us a little bit about that. What, what are the sort of employee benefits that you get in Australia? Because that then obviously impacts on lots of other things like the commission model, et cetera. So, um, so, so what are some of the benefits an employee gets there? Yeah, and I think that compared to other countries, I know that the entitlements to, you know, for anyone that's working in Australia who is an employee, I know that they're very generous. So um, whether it is, uh, you know, 10 days, uh, what we call personal leave that you're entitled to each year. So that could be if, uh, you know, if your partner's sick as well. Uh, So if you're not capable to go to work, then you get paid leave. We have bereavement leave, so compassionate leave. So if someone um, does pass away in your direct family, it's unlimited, two days paid um, for each occasion. So that's unlimited throughout the year. We're introducing uh, domestic violence leave as well. Um, And then we have uh, four weeks um, holiday a year as well, annual leave. So we're we're very, very lucky. We have new, we have so many public holidays. I've lost count how many public holidays we get. <laughs> you know, uh, we also have, you know, penalty rates on, you know, working overtime, working weekends, working Sunday, etc. So there's quite a lot of different entitlements that, um, yeah, that our employees get. And then we have another thing that's called superannuation. And what that is, it's for saving, you know, for retirement. And it's at 9.5%. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you are obligated to pay into that. You know, you must pay into their superannuation funds. Um, And so on top of their wage, on top of their hourly rate, there are quite a lot of entitlements that we really need to account for as well. You know, I know that when I think about um, my employees, I don't work on 52 weeks. I work on 46 weeks. And, you know, you always have to factor in a bit of downtime in there as well on what mm-hmm. they really cost you. And so when I think about um, what I pay mine, I have to factor in all of those extra entitlements. And I work on a 46 week to allow for the amount of time that's actually off as well. Mm. So, mm-hmm. so when you talked about bereavement leave, and mm. I think you called it personal leave. You said there were 10 days for that. Uh, who pays yeah. for that? The salon owner or the, or the government or what? 
No, the salon will pay for that and it accumulates. Yeah. So if you've been with someone for 20 years, then you can multiply that. It actually accumulates every year. So after 20 years, you could take all of that personal leave and it's paid for by the salon owner. Yeah. Right. And the compassionate leave, it's all paid for by the salon owner as well. Okay. All and right. we you- also get loading. Just for taking yeah. a holiday. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I love that one. That's so Australian. I so, what, so what exactly I, is it? Oh, <laughs> Just explain what that is. That's, it's ridiculous. That's exactly what it is. So we get paid 17.5% loading when we go on holidays. And, um, so you get paid more on holiday than you do when you're at work. That's what, that's what you're saying, yes. yeah? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I think that's meant to cover the fact that you're not going to be paid commission or something so therefore you should get something Mm. and it's loading and it's outrageous it's ridiculous but it's the same as in business we pay payroll tax and Mm. payroll tax is if you employ x amount of people and um, your wages reach a threshold you pay more tax but that tax actually came in the war and it was for child endowment in the war in world war ii and it's still a tax that we pay, and they gave it a different name. So some things are a bit silly. Some yeah. things I love you about. Like, I'm, I can imagine because it makes it very hard to run a profitable business. Um, but we'll, we'll come to that in a minute. Uh, well, just as a ballpark figure, what, what is the hourly rate for a stylist in Australia? What are they paid per hour? So, well, that's always an issue. So if we, if we look at the award, the actual award, though, what you're supposed to pay, mm-hmm. you know, it can be anything between, um, you know, say $20, $22 an hour, whatever. But for the salons who really want to keep their staff, they're, so they let, will pay a lot just, more. Let, okay. So, so $22 an hour Australian, for our American audience, that's about $15 US an hour, okay. um, which is about double. Is that good? It's about double what you would be we, paid. We get America. double the, the minimum. Yeah, the minimum uh, there is about eight. It's about eight US dollars an hour. But then you see their oh. commission levels are much higher. Um, but yeah, it's always always interesting to hear. So uh, uh, twenty two dollars is about eleven pounds ballpark. You know, for our for our English audience, which again is significantly higher than what you would get paid in this country. Um, so your hourly rates are a lot higher. And what you're saying with both those numbers is that that is the minimum. And if you actually want to keep yeah. people, you've got to be paying a lot more than that per hour. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of us have been uh, actually online in the last couple of days posting about the hourly rates that we're paying. And, you know, some of them are uh, really hanging more around the $25, $30 and some even $40 an hour. And then, of mm. course, your commission structure is, you know, adjusted around that. But, you know, I think that if you have a really good senior stylist, and and they're doing an average week, which could be 35 to 38 hours, and they're doing a good turnover and earning good money, then they would be earning between, you know, say seventy to $80,000 to $80, a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there would be other stylists that are sitting up around the $90,000. Um, they are the better salons that are paying their staff well, of course, sure. who, are, yeah. who are not paying just a, a standard wage, yeah. So... Well, most people there are paid uh, an hourly rate and then they're paid a commission on top of that. Are they based on some sort of, you know, target? Is that that general way it's done? Yeah. And so um, you are required to pay uh, a minimum amount anyway, the, the award wage. You must pay 
that and all the entitlements regardless. And then on top of that, different salons will have different mod- models, I guess, for how they would mm. pay their pay their commission. A lot of them work off three times, you know, what their would, wage would be. I, I've never really agreed with that because I think that the cost to run a salon nowadays is a lot more than what it was 20 years ago. Mm. And 20 years ago, we might have talked about three times the wage, but I really think it's more like four or five times the wage now is closer to what you know, what everything really does cost to run a salon. Hmm. Well, and then and then after that, they get a commission. So say j- just for ballpark figures, um, if, if I'm doing, if my wages are going to be $1,000 a week, just for ease of maths here, um, then what you're saying is that until I do 3000 so three times my, my wage, I don't get any commission. Yeah. And then after yeah. that, I would yeah. get a commission just as a, just to explain yeah. the concept. And typically yeah. what sort of commission would that be? What, what percentage would it be? Oh, well, they will all differ. So, right. um, you know, they, it could be 10% of something, 20% of something, 30% of something. So right. okay. I know that in my own system, we pay different brackets. And then when they reach a certain turnover, they get nine or 10% or 12% of their turnover, hmm. that type of thing. Um, and so, everyone seems to have like a different kind of structure. So they might do $4,000 and get X percent of that. Yeah. Okay. And and that is where the big differences between Australia and the U S is that their commission levels are much, much higher, uh, but they don't get all those on things that are included in Australia. They don't get sick leave. They don't get, you know, four weeks paid vacation. They sure as hell don't get bereavement leave and, and personal leave and, and all those loading things. They are, are sort of quite unique to, you know, the Australian way. And so that's why the percentages are lower because otherwise you simply couldn't run a business. It just, you know, the, the, the money isn't there um, if you were paying right. higher percentages. Yeah. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, and a lot of, um, including my salon, we pay our commission structure based on services. And so I've always believed that the higher the services and the higher the dollar anyway, the higher dollar per client, the higher the turnover. So the way I've always paid my commission is based on how many colours they do, how many treatments they do, how many treatments, uh, how much retail they do, and how many of their clients rebook. So we actually base our commission structure on how many services they do. The higher the service, the higher the dollar anyway, it sort of just comes along. But mm. I find that when they concentrate on their services and not on their dollars, then the dollars come anyway, and there's a guarantee that the client is serviced well and correctly. Yeah. Okay, let's come back to your role with um, the Australian Hairdressing Council and the representation you have with government. Um, how much impact do organisations like the AHC, how much impact do they have on on staring, you know, the government in terms of how decisions they may impact on our industry? I think that they make a huge impact, okay, and because I think you've got to have some voice versus mm. no voice. I also think that you need to align yourself with other associations that have very similar, uh, I guess, policies in place. So one of my roles is I'm also a director of the Council of Small Business Organisations of Australia, and their members are actually other associations. And so when we represent um, the industry to government, we represent over 1.3 million small businesses. Okay. And we're always we're always sourced by the media for uh, consultation or for interviews, et cetera, when it comes to business. 
So I think that you you have to have a presence. You have to be there and you really have to drive that presence and that network as well. I make myself very available for, you know, for the interviews. Um, you know, we have submissions that are in. I really source who I have to see and I'm not afraid to go and see anybody. And I think that you have to, though, be very knowledgeable about your industry. And, um, you know, because when you see a minister, you really don't have a lot of time. They want to know who you are, who you represent, what do you want and what's your solution. And you need to get that out within a good 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And if they like what you're hearing, then, then you get probably 20 minutes more, but otherwise you get that 20 minutes. So I think that you really have to have strong representation. You've also got to have backup people as well. Um, other associations that, so, so it's not so fragmented if you're, if you're lobbying over something in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, so an example is we've got students here and they can work 20 hours a week. Well, all of us believe that students on visas should be able to work 40 hours a week because at the moment no one can get work. So that would be the Australian Hairdressing Council that feels that's important, but it would be also the Hospitality Association. It would be the Retail Association. So we stand with other associations as well so that we have a louder, stronger voice, in fact. Yeah. Are you, is hairdressing, um, you know, treated with respect? I mean, what sort of credibility do you, do, do you have when you're talking to ministers and stuff? Is it like, oh, my gosh, I've got to talk to hairdressers today, you know, eye roll? Uh, or uh, are they, you know, excited about talking to you and our industry and, you know, are they respectful of what we do and the contribution that as an industry we make to the economy? I think that if you can show that contribution and you do know your facts and your figures and you get that out front so that you give mm. the industry some credibility really fast, that's important. Um, look, a lot of the ministers can be dismissive and, um, you know, me, Anthony, I am, you know, I'm a very confident speaker if I am speaking with ministers and so I will not back down and I think that um, and I've become a bit known for that I know that um, sort of so they'll even joke and call me by my first name and and they'll use exam- they'll use me as an example how I'm quite you know, like I'm on a mission, especially when it comes to certain things that I'm lobbying. So yeah. um, look, in the beginning, when I first went to Parliament House, I know that I went and, oh, my God, I think I toxically vomited all over a minister and he said, what do you want? I said, I don't know. I was just too busy telling you what I'm not happy with. And whereas now, you know, you have a format, you go in with, you, you go in with a mission, you know exactly what you want to say and mm. you go in with an outcome. Like with anything, you know, you know, everyone likes to whinge and whine, but they never have an outcome. They never have a solution. And yeah. so they're no different. They actually want you to present the solution. They may not agree with it. And then, mm. um, you know, with the skills migration list, that's a lot of work for us because we have to keep going back and redoing it. And it is, um, look, I'll be honest. Yes, you do get dismissed as hairdressing and, we've even brought that up that we will not be seen as frivolous that we will not Mm. be just you know sort of flagged off or you know we've made it very clear that we that we won't tolerate that either and um and i'm and i'm very vocal about that i will say i'm very vocal about not being dismissed good Mm. okay as as an industry part of this shortage of people is not just the issue about getting it on the skills list so that you can bring you know people in from other countries, some of it is about making it a more attractive career choice uh, in the first place. So as an industry body, 
what do you do or what does the industry in Australia do to try and make hairdressing look like a, or not look like, to be a more, um, to be taken seriously and seen as a more credible uh, career choice by by potential hairdressers, by uh, careers counsellors at schools um, and by parents? So with the AHC, because that's a huge audience there that we need to really address and, and you know, be able to show that hairdressing is a brilliant career of choice. So we've been liaising with a lot of the government departments so that we can have conversations with, with the schools and with the careers advisors as well. Um, I think the hardest audience is, is parents because they all want their kids to go to uni and, um, and not really go into a trade. And so... And the AHC has things like Choose Hair, which is on our social media pages, telling great stories about, you know, wonderful hairdressers and all the opportunities, et cetera. So we're continually telling these, these stories out there to just try and shift the image of hairdressing, show the opportunities, um, you know, show that it can be a career for life. Um, it's something that, you know, I, I mean, I still love my career. I've been in it for over 40 years and I chose it because I wanted to have fun and really I've had 40 years of fun. So, you know, we, I guess, um, for us elevating the image, it's all about just how we represent the Australian hairdressing industry as well as an industry because we have a lot of consumers that come to us. We do have a lot of parents that come to us um, and it's elevating the image, of course, to the government, as you said before, to make sure they take us seriously as well. Um, that they don't see us as a frivolous occupation. Um, and so um, I guess making sure that we are involved in the conversation in every pathway that we can possibly think of and every platform that we can think of to just continually elevate hairdressing. Um, everything that we do, it's, that's, it's all about the betterment of the industry for the AHC. Yeah. Okay. Um, last thing, want to really finish on a positive note here is, is, is what do you see about the best thing about the Australian hairdressing industry? What, what are the things that you're really proud of that as an industry um, that you do and do really well? Mm, do you know, I look at the platform of some of our really incredible, successful business owners, creatives, um, stylists, uh, you know, uh, fashion. I think that we have so much talent here. Um, I think we're very isolated from the rest of the world and that doesn't matter. I think that, you know, I look at some of the photographic makeup, fashion, hairdressing, um, the arts in Australia. I just think that we're, we're very much a lucky country. We have great communities here and we have talented people. So, um, you know, I think that the hairdressing industry is a great industry, really, even though we have our problems like every other country. Um, you know, it really is a, it's a good industry. It's a great industry. It's a strong industry. Um, yes, we were affected by 2020, just like everybody else, but um, certainly not like the UK or the USA. We're very lucky there. And our industry is doing really well at the moment, I feel. Um, we have our problems, but I feel that we're doing, you know, overall, we're doing well as an industry. Yeah, good. I think so too. Okay. Well, listen, we need to start wrapping up. Whereabouts can people connect with you on Instagram or any other social media channels? 
Yeah, so we've got quite a few pages on social media, but if you go to the Australian Hairdressing Council on Facebook and we have uh, YouthWorks AHC on Instagram as well, um, and you can connect with me there. You can private message me on the Australian Hairdressing Council. I'll always get back to you. Um, yeah, or you can uh, go by the Australian Hairdressing Council website as well. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, well, I'll put those links on our website, growmysalonbusiness.com, in the show notes for today's podcast. If you're listening to this podcast with Sandy and have enjoyed it, then do me a favour, subscribe to the podcast, and don't forget to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. So without further ado, to wrap up, Sandy Chong, thank you for being on this week's episode of the Grow My Salon Business podcast. And thank you, Anthony. So happy to be here with you. Thanks so much. Great. Cheers. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.